you're listening to episode 41 of Fear the Boots interview series. In this interview, we talk with Charles Wellington. Running time for this episode is 57 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Brodor. And this is Wayne. And joining us today is Charles Wellington. Hey, guys. All right. We're going to come back in a second here. Wait a minute. He does not have a limey accent. Like I expected Charles Wellington. Good evening, sir. I'm Charles Wellington. Has anyone ever given you the nickname Beef? <laughs> yes, they have. In, in, in college. <laughs> it's like, hey, Beef Wellington's taller on his back. <laughs> That's the moment I pat the inside of my leg. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Wow, okay, so I was the only one here that was thinking, like, uh, British Admiralty? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Pretty I said much. limey. Uh, I'm sorry okay. to offend our British listeners. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sorry that I offended our British listeners. I just, you know. Right, right. <laughs> it's the polite <laughs> yeah. thing. To, yeah. well, well, the British would understand that, yeah. because British people always say sorry. <laughs> always, you know, I, I, love, I just go straight through the superlative form here. But British people, there's a thing in British culture or slang or whatever where they say sorry to mean other things. Like if uh, someone brings out a steak and it's not cooked right or I don't know, whatever issues you have like this in England, I don't know what you guys eat. And you say like, hey, sorry, you didn't cook this right. Right. And so it's, it's probably one of the phrases that makes me want to commit a felony more than any other is sorry, not sorry. Because it's never used in a clever way. It's always just used to be a dick. And <laughs> yeah, in the case of Bruno, he's just so used to offending. It's a reflex. It's true. You say something and you say, sorry. It's like a gag response. <laughs> I just love it when they insult you and then they ask you a question afterwards to agree with you. So like, you're a dick. Don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, my God. My manner of speaking has been enhanced. Your, your mannerisms. Just yeah. put an extra yeah. you in there, and it, it'll work out. My mannerisms. Mannerisms, yes. <laughs> Have I ever told you that one of the greatest moments of my life was correcting someone's pronunciation of condescending? That's that is awesome. Uh, your brother, okay, and it wasn't him, but your my, your brother, Brodor. Right. Your Brodor brother, the Elder. Brodor yeah. the Elder, yeah, yeah uh, non-Brodor, Bob. So <laughs> Bob made a comment to me. That I think is 100% true, which is anyone that knows the term pedant is one. (laughs) (laughs) And I think he is absolutely right. And he told me this when I was was in the middle of a grammar Nazi thing, Mm -hmm. though. One of these days, I'm going to go on one of my anti-grammar Nazi things. Like, I'm going to switch sides. This is going to be like my Operation Valkyrie or whatever. I'm going to defend the word irregardless because people don't understand what it is. Oh, jeez. There's a word for you. I know. it's <laughs> Well, and that's because uh, well, I'm going to say this. I don't know when I'm going to do this, but I'm going to give a defense of the word irregardless because people don't know what the word actually is. At least I, I should say a lot of people in my estimation. So, Charles, do, do you like Charles Chuck uh, Duke Beef? Beef. Beef, all right. Beef. So beef is on the show. If you want to know where the beef is, he's on Fear the Boot right now. And so beef is on the show because he's going to talk about the intersection of gaming and fiction, and I've got some thoughts on that. But this has been on my mind recently for a couple reasons, and the two that I want to give real quick shout-outs to before we get into beef stuff 
is first off, I mentioned this last episode, but I did a bit of flash fiction, which is a thousand words or less, so a really short, short story as part of a collection of flash fiction. I believe it's a hundred stories by a hundred authors. So this is great. If you just want these quick hits of fiction while you're on the bus or on the John, whatever, whenever it is you read, you know, it's up to you, but it's editor is Jason brick. I am one of the authors in there as are several other of your fellow booters and listeners. So if you want to pick this up, I will link this book in the show notes. It is called flash. And once again, it's an anthology of flash fiction and the story that I put in there is set in my other homebrew, not Skies of Glass, set the sci-fi one, Epoch Horizons. The other thing I want to give a shout out to is a book by Kathleen Kaufman. And she is the wife of a booter. Maybe she's a booter herself. I don't know. I, I know her, her husband is. But she wrote a book called, maybe mispronouncing this, but the Laird Balor, Laird Balor, I, I don't know how to pronounce this. But it's a kind of crossover between like horror and mythology it reminded me of a scene in c.s lewis's voyage of the dawn treader where there's a place called the island of dreams or an island where all your dreams come true and everyone thinks this means like you're going to win the lottery and get a beautiful girl but it literally means your dreams come true like the things you have in your sleep including nightmares and such and this kid falls into a world that's full of dreams and nightmares and all these things. So it's about a child, but it's not a child's story. And I always keep a book that I read for just a little bit before I go to bed. And that's my current book I'm reading. So I want to give a shout out to Kathleen. And I apologize if I'm brutalizing the pronunciation here, but the Laird Bowler, Laird Balor, I will link this in the show notes. Good book, even if I can't pronounce the name. So... <laughs> Check that out and flash. All right. So with other gamers and their fiction out of the way, Charles, tell us something about yourself. Something about me. Well, I've been a gamer since I was a kid. I'd say around, geez, I started on it about nine. I really got into it about 13 years old. And I'm just a complete Dungeons and Dragons nut. Oh, come on. So first game, all right, this is going to be a great question. I, anything, right? I was just hoping to hear something off the wall. It could have been anything. I was hoping for a dissertation about riffs and about how <laughs> riffs is the penultimate of role-playing games. Okay, you want, you want a dissertation? Here we go. All right, so me, in my opinion, of everything I've ever played, and we're going back to 93, I think even with 5E, 4E, AD&D, all this stuff that's out and available, I will always say 100%, 3.5 is single-handedly the best edition out there, straight up, mm. because of the simple fact that you can get more out of that with, re with a good DM with regards to role-playing, with regards to the fact that a whole RPG system, the whole basis of the rules and the structure and the skill points and everything that goes into it is to simulate a real world in a fantasy setting within your imagination and to make it so believable and so you know deep that when your character dies, you're sitting there and you're freaking, you feel it in your chest. So to me, when I look at all these other editions that come out there that try to dumb it down and make it easier for everybody else, I'm sitting here going, you're taking 
everything away from role playing, the storytelling, the epicness, the what hits your heart when you watch 300, Star Wars, Willow, you name it. You're taking it all away when you're going to dumb it down, make it easier, make it faster, and not require a person to go in-depth into their imagination and feel that character and make them come alive. Two things. First of all, apart from the word dumb, nothing you said in there had anything to do with riffs. (laughs) (laughs) Secondly, I want you to know that at this point, we could cut your mic and I could bring on somebody who has 100% absolute, concrete, irrefutable proof about what happens after death, the truth about flying saucers, the Kennedy assassination. and We've recorded that episode. And, however, all we are going to get on the forums now is about 25 pages of discussion on what you just said about D&D 3.5. So I want you to know the rest of this episode can be a total wash because at this point, I don't think anyone's even listening. All right, so you can say whatever you want. If you've got some hideous opinion that you just want to get out there. Or some terrible dark secret to get off your chest. Yeah, now is the time to do it. (laughs) You, I'm Seriously, anything you want. All right. Depending who you talk to, he just did give his hideous opinion. Possibly so. All right, but so as funny as that was. All right, let's talk about your book. Okay. So uh, my book is, of course, the epic fantasy genre. It's called Corsana, the Phalanx Syndicate. And I am pronouncing that that way because everyone pronounces it wrong. And, you know, it's an epic fantasy tale of a coming-of-age story about a young man. His name's Christopher Knight. Everyone just calls him CK, and he's a psionic, a person who, of course, you know, anyone who plays RPG knows what psionic is, telekinesis, telepathy, etc. And when ships start capsizing off the coast... He sees his chance as the mayor puts out a call for people to investigate. So he throws his hat into the ring, gets put together with a hodgepodge group of unknown, untested mercenaries. And as they go out into the world to investigate, a greater, bigger villain begins to emerge. And as they see this happening at this point in a world full of goblins, orcs, giants, and dragons, and danger lurking around every corner, they're just hoping to make it home alive come the end. How much of this was inspired or influenced by gaming? Man, I would say at least 60 to 80% of it. So obviously if we talk about the concepts, the structure of the story, things like that, this plays pretty close to how a lot of games occur, especially within the fantasy genre. And that reminds me in many ways of some of the classic D&D novels and such, which were stated to be based on people's home games and things like that. And I, you know, I certainly, from the moment that you described this book to me when we were chatting on Facebook, I saw those influences there. But one of the things that I'm kind of curious about is, is there anything more directly taken? Like, for example, are there specific characters that you develop through role-playing? Are there specific plot points or scenes that are going to be in the book that came from role-playing? Well, and there's an angle that I'm working toward here, but I, I want to ask this question first to see if I got traction or not specifically in regard to your book. Okay, so in regards to my book, it's kind of a 50-50 split, yes slash no. As far as the characters 
and who they are and stuff? Absolutely not. It was one of those situations where I would look at, I, I have this deal with anyone who's ever gamed with me, which was, you know, you create a character for my world, it becomes, that character becomes under my copyright, my ownership, a part of my world, and everybody agrees to that. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I look at some of these characters, and there may be pieces where I'm like, ooh, that's kind of cool, I like that personality quirk or something, but no character is a character that has ever been actually in the world and played. With that being stated, as I was developing the story, there were certain things where I wanted to see how it would go out, so I would create... Let's just, okay, start off with the first. There was a scene where they go to a lighthouse. And so the whole thing with the design of the lighthouse and everything in and around it, the train, I ran people through those uh, missions, per se, to see how they would react, what would they do, etc. So I got to watch it played out and kind of have a feel for, okay, so, you know, people like this, people haven't. I've watched multiple groups run the exact same thing and to see different ways it would end up turning out. That's a fascinating concept of using the unpredictability of human reaction to get yourself out of your own head. Because one of the problems that I've had with a lot of authors, even authors I like, is they're very much stuck inside of their own head. Eventually, their characters, their plots, the arcs that they follow, start to follow pretty predictable themes. Some authors are worse than others in this regard, but I think it's human nature, right? We only see the world in a finite and very, very personal set of ways. And so I think it's kind of neat that you took some of these plot points based not on how you would have reacted to the situation or even how you picture the characters reacting to the situation, but how you saw other people reacting to the situation. Right. He play tested his novel. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think that's the exact right phrase to describe it. Absolutely. You know, and it was, it's one of those things where to be, to be able to watch a person do that, it's really unique in the sense where, I mean, how many books have you had the opportunity to go, okay, you know, you're reading the book, you know the author, you know, like you mentioned, predictability. The author does something, you're like, oh my gosh, I would have done this. In this case, you know, it's a combination of people have played this and done certain things, and depending on how the reaction, if it's really good and really epic and they enjoy it, hey, I try to you know, filter that lens of, okay, this worked well. They love this part. Let's see how we can incorporate that into this scene. You said you've never taken player characters and added them in. What about NPCs? Because it seems like that would be a good way to test the likability or potentially dislikability of an NPC. That one, absolutely. (laughs) And, you know, it's uh, like there is this one character, and he hasn't shown up yet, He's is a gentleman by the name of Tori, and he's the owner of an establishment called Tori's Trinkets. And he's just an over-the-top salesman with regards to, you know, magic items and stuff. And he's definitely a character who I've tested out. And it was really quite funny because I just I was having some fun and I let the character go for I would say a good four or five months, and when the group actually ended up getting back to town and decided to level up and they were talking about buying items and they couldn't find what they wanted, um, one of them was like, well, I think we know someone. And uh, out of the player's mouth, they were like, yep, we know Tori. And I I didn't even think about it. I hadn't had that, that planned. And for those characters to be brought up by name from a person who's not looking at their notes, who's, 
you know, just on the whim, it's coming out. I'm like, that character's working. So let's do this. So I was talking to someone recently, and I wish I could remember whom, but I don't. Maybe it was Beth. I don't know. Maybe it was you, Charles. <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea. I was talking to somebody. Uh, that's Duke Beef to you. I'm sorry. I was talking to Beef. <laughs> and oh, I'll show you this one. When you talk about English-sounding names, mm-hmm. my full name is Charles Roy Allen Wellington II. Try that one for English. <laughs> uh, you need to be an Esquire. Uh, yeah, I was about to ask what lands you have title to. I'm working on it. <laughs> no, you just haven't found it out yet. Somewhere right. you've got a longer introduction. But Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> I, was, I was talking to somebody. The conversation that I was having with this person was about the relationship between gamers and people that have some form of a creative ambition and it could be visual arts, but for the sake of this episode, just focus on writing. And one of the observations that I made in the course of this conversation is that I don't think that overlap is incidental. And the other observation I made, I'm going to tie these thoughts together here, but the other observation I made is that the people that are most inclined to want to pursue some form of a creative art seem to also be the game masters. So here's the thesis that I kind of had at the center of this whole thing. Role-playing games are a form of storytelling. It's a fundamentally creative exercise, some of which is planned beforehand, some of which is done on the spot. And I want to come back to that in a minute too. But my central thesis to this discussion was that there's an overlap between people that game and people that have some kind of creative ambition, that want to write stories in the form of prose or whatnot. And that I don't think this is incidental, because I think they are fundamentally driven by the exact same thing. Because in both cases, if we're talking about gamers, particularly game masters, these are people that have a passion for telling stories to others, for seeing their reactions, for leading them through some kind of shared experience. And if you look at somebody who's an author, while they may have more control over the world, they are fundamentally doing the exact same thing. And so the the person I was talking to, they kind of made the observation, well, it seems like a lot of gamers want to be writers and whatever. And I'm like, you know, I don't think that's quite the right relationship. I think it's much more circular than that. I don't think it's quite so... You know, it's, an, it's not an arrow pointed in one direction. I right, think, like a lot of writers are gamers. Yes, I, I think we're talking about really one set of passion that people just find multiple outlets for. Yeah, so, they think there is, there's definitely some crossover skills here, as well as, like you're mentioning, passion. And people need an outlet for that. Gaming serves as an outlet for people that aren't interested in trying to get something published. Or are I, too lazy to write. Tr- that, that as well. Or both. I mean, or people who have stories they want to tell, and this is a quick and easy way to do it. Or to go to what Charles is talking about, beef, I'm sorry. Have, uh, Duke beef? Duke beef. Duke beef Wellington? Have, I love it. They have some ideas that they want to try out or bounce off of people, and it's a great place to do it. Or sometimes you discover these gems purely by accident. Yeah, when you look at the skill sets, you have to be able to visualize a world in your head, visualize characters, create characters, create personalities, make them unique, 
create plots. These are the same skills across both. You have to be able to structure. You have to be able to pace. Yeah, and I have to say, I've done this too in writing, where I've had a base story that I thought was interesting, and I wanted to see what people would do. Yeah. And I use that afterwards to go back and rewrite the story. Yeah, well, I mean, imagine if you could sit there and watch somebody read a novel that you wrote, and in real time, get some kind of feedback on how invested they are, how much they like a scene or dislike a scene, whether they care about a character or not. And that's what role-playing is, is you have that immediate read on the reaction that people are having to your ideas. So now you're focus grouping your novel. Or vice versa. I, I mean, I once again, I, I don't know that it's quite right. so linear as to say that mm-hmm. gamers are, are novelists or novelists are gamers so much as I think that people that have a creative passion they're going to look for any outlet they can find for that. And therefore that creative flame, right? That, that spark spark in the middle drives them to both gaming and writing. And the fact that they are gamers and writers is a coincidence of a third cause. You know, it's not that gaming makes them want to write or writing makes them want to game. And that was kind of what I was positing in this discussion. Your beast of imagination clawing its way out of your mind. And I find it works its way into other things as well. Like video games, for example. The people that are really creative, City of Heroes is my go-to MMO, which I really miss even to this day. I do too. Where I would create characters and they would have whole backstories because that was another outlet for ideas. I wrote like half a novel on one of my characters and that was his backstory. I know Dan had backstories for some of his that were incredibly extensive as well. And to the point where the game itself added in the ability to write missions, people were drawn to the game that were more creative because the tools were presented there for them. Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. The amount of detail that you could put in the appearance of your character, the trappings of your character, the colors of your powers, the exact mix of your powers, the way that you changed from one costume to the other. So you could actually have a secret identity, quote unquote. You had a bio section that other where people, you could actually, other people could read where yeah. you would write your story. I mean, it's, it's all these little things in some cases, very big things like going to start. There's also a mission creator where you could script out your own missions with dialogue and you could create your own, enemies that they would face and because these are all the things i do in games when i played wow for a while my character had a story going through as it went through i just didn't have all the tools to make it possible and the same thing for wrestling games like we talked about in last episode i would do the same thing i would create a story around a character it was no wrestlebot <laughs> i uh, yeah i i never reached that height of story, no nobody but. does but I did have characters that would have full backstories. So Charles, do you, I assume that you find yourself game mastering far more than you do participating as a player. Oh, I've been game mastering since 2005. And literally since I started game mastering, I haven't stopped. Um, I'm glad they gave you a break to appear on the show. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's one of those situations where I actually, so I bumped it back so we actually play every other week, which, of course, gives me time to prep every session. But on the weekends in between, I actually finally found a group 
where I can actually go and play and just have a moment where I'm not the one being the dungeon master. <laughs> yeah, and that's I know some people only want to play, some people only want to run. I really I have a I'm a switch. I want both. <laughs> I re- yeah, you are. I require time running games as well as just playing in them. And I wouldn't be satisfied with just one. Uh, and that's the hard part is, okay, so I, if I could, I would only be a player. It's one of those situations where I'm the dungeon master, not because, you know, I want to be, but because they need me to be. Um. And it's not to sound, I don't know if that's sounding egotistical or what, but basically what ended up happening when I, when I was a kid, when I was 13 years old, I had this major, amazing dungeon master, and he created a world that was so vibrant and deep and epic that I loved it. I mean, I had such an amazing time. I could remember it, you know, even now in detail, the missions and the little nuances. And so when I started dungeon mastering, I actually started gaming, the people who were my DMs, straight up, they sucked. There was there wasn't any of that depth. There wasn't those characters with those quirks and backstories. And even though they were sitting here going, "Hey, I'm creating a world and I want to explore it," none of the things that to me are important to world building were there. So I actually was like, I looked at them and said, "Listen, give me two weeks. Let me start DMing this." And they were like, "Okay," because they didn't want to DM. They just did it kind of like me. But they were bad at it, so I took two weeks, I started creating my world, and it didn't stop from there to the point where, if you were in my house right now, there are two seven-foot-by-seven-foot topographical maps on my walls that are hexed out, completely drawn, and every single city that is listed, I literally have in a binder, uh, depending on which one I grab, the city not only, I I haven't drawn out the city, but I will have the listed of who's living there, at least three or four taverns, Uh, each person, we'll stick with taverns for now, each person, the owner of the tavern, I know all their quirks, all their habits, all their marks, their accents, their hair color, you name it, to the point where if they were to start a new campaign and go back there and they meet someone and they remember the tavern name, they remember the city, they're running into the exact same character. This isn't just some new person off of the fly. They can interact and remember these people, even if it's metagaming, and get back there and be like, oh my gosh, I'm running into this amazing character once again with a different character of my own. And to me, that's important. Have any of your players found that intimidating? That you know your world that well? I don't know if they found it intimidating. I will say that from what I've gleaned from them, they it's one of those situations where I think the only part that they find intimidating is that I have a, the the base four or five that I have will not go and really join other games because of the simple fact of what I've given them with this. I guess that's the best I can answer that one. <laughs> they keep coming uh, back I for do. the beef. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why have well, hamburger it, when you can have steak? Right. Well, and that's the hard part is like it's one of those situations where great example. We have an, I always have, of course, the overarching, you know, main campaign, main storyline. And when they develop their characters, I don't ask them for a lot. I'm like, hey, give me a couple paragraphs, and I will take those two, three paragraphs, find the little nuggets in them, and create those nuggets into this story, and I will weave. It doesn't matter if it's three, five, eight players. I will weave all their storylines together along with the main campaign, so that way, even as they're going along their own and they're figuring out what's happening, 
They're not losing track of the main campaign. They're still interested in each other's. I work it into the different levels. And, you know, I make sure that when it comes down to it, that they're going to remember that character and what they went through one way or the other. The reason I was asking about it being intimidating is because I have found that in some of the homebrews that I've made, people did find it intimidating that there was that much developed because they felt overwhelmed. I guess even when I was very careful about introducing them to ideas slowly, where I'd start them in somewhere very narrow and work their way outward. Like, for example, right now, the homebrew we're running for the actual play Sky's Glass. Well, that one's relatively easy to relate to for the people that are playing it because the concept of the real world, post-nuke, fairly straightforward ideas. And where they are is based on the area that we actually live in. And so it's fairly easy to find points of reference where these ideas make sense and can be easily tied into certain things. But there are other settings that I have, for example, like science fiction ones in particular, where once they see the number of truly alien, both literally and metaphorically, ideas out there, it starts to intimidate them more and more. Once again, even if they're not being asked to actually understand these ideas or whatever, but simply knowing they're there starts to overwhelm them. You know, I can give you an example that's not even a homebrew. Battletech. I was about to say Battletech's another one. I find Battletech really intimidating because of all the vast amount of history. And when you go into a game, at least when I was going into a game, the people around me had Battletech history. I had none of it. So I'm creating a character that the character should know this information about the world, but I am clueless. And Battletech is generally speaking very relatable. You know, the the concepts that are in Battletech, sociologically, economically, it's very straightforward stuff that you can find tons of parallels to in human history, even in current human culture. And it's full of, you know, sci-fi tropes and whatever. But there's so much. But there is so much of it. And so that's why I was curious, Charles, if when a player comes in and they see this topographical map and a bookshelf full of binders and all this stuff, they're just like, oh, my gosh, so many proper (laughs) nouns. You know, I just I can't do this. (laughs) Well, in that aspect, and that makes a lot more sense as far as the, the intimidation part, I will say yes. To start off with, when they walk into the house and they see that, it is that intimidation factor. It's also, I try and more emphasize it towards letting them know you are going to get someone who is going to invest in you as a player and your character. And then from there, I focus them on usually just one area, one eight by you know 11 piece of paper. I'm like, okay, so this is the area we're starting out in. And by narrowing it, by focusing it like a laser, it makes it easier. It gives them the moment to breathe, to be able to look at just that location, those cities, and go, oh, okay. So this is, I said, yes. So I said, for the first six levels, you're going to be in this area. You don't have to worry about anything else. Just focus on this paper here. And that kind of gives them that moment to breathe. Right. But I've kind of become used to that because when people ask me, like, what type of DM I am, the phrase that I've come up with is I consider myself a rehabilitation DM. And what I mean by that is there are so many players out there who have had bad experiences, whether it's with a group they've with, with other players, or especially, you know, dungeon masters. 
that I'm sitting here and I look at them and I'm, I make sure they know. I'm like, listen, I was like, I am not your enemy. I'm not fighting you on the other side of this table. I'm here to give you a story, give you obstacles to overcome. I am my enjoyment. My purpose is not to kill your character. We are not at odds here. I want you to have fun. And it's weird for them to hear that and be like, okay, are you serious? And I'm like, yeah, I'm not here to TPK. (laughs) I know exactly what you're talking about. It's something that I don't think I've ever done directly, maybe outside of con games. But at least because I, I tend to game with people that I know pretty well. And the people that I know pretty well have not really been traumatized by past game masters. No. Dan has. <laughs> that <laughs> well, is something when you run a game for Dan, you have to keep in mind. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Is However, <laughs> I have been really screwed over by some past game masters. Not people I game with anymore, but people that I once gamed with. And more than that, I think more than a rehabilitative GM, I need rehabilitative players, which I will say the current group is doing a wonderful job of doing of players that are not constantly antagonizing the game master, trying to derail the plot or whatever it is. All the hundred thousand bad player habits we're all familiar with. Oh yeah. And making crap characters playing with their phone, whatever it is. And I have been brutalized by some stuff over the years. And so I, I absolutely appreciate the value of what it is you set out to do. And there are people that have listened to the actual plays that we're doing right now. And I've been very surprised by the number of people that have contacted us to say, you know, I've never heard gaming go like this, you know, where it's not antagonistic between the players and the game master where the world has some depth and, and all this kind of, I mean, it's the stuff that it's not profound ideas, or at least I guess it shouldn't be. I guess to follow the old canard, uh, common courtesy and common sense aren't. And maybe this is something like that where the, I don't know, the the ways that I think gaming can be fun without focusing on an adversarial relationship and constant combat and zero depth and zero character and zero story. And I remember when I first started gaming, having conversations with people out there online about well, how often do you have a combat? And the idea that we would go five, six sessions with no combat whatsoever was mind-blowing. People at the time, you know, a lot of people are like, I can't imagine going a session without a combat. It's fascinating to think about that particular subject because I was curious for Charles and his game mastering style, since D&D is his preference, what is his narrative to combat mix and how does that relate to the narrative combat mix of the book man that's a good one oh as far as the game i would say oh man i really wish i could say it was like 50 50 but combat wise i'm gonna say it fluctuates it's one of those situations where when you're for example when you're in a dungeon you can pretty much expect that i would say 90 percent of what you're going to be doing is combat i mean you're in a dungeon once you get out of that dungeon and you're traveling on the road or you get within the city, then you may have a session that's, you know, one or two sessions that's 100% nothing but role playing. And that's just the way it is. So while it 
fluctuates and it goes back and forth, I don't really on purposely try and make it a specific, uh, like, 50-50. I just kind of go with the flow and let them know, hey, it's based off of, you know, what you're going to do, which way you're going. You do not have to fight everything that you come across. If you can get past it by being diplomatic, you're going to get the same experience points either way. I'm cool with it. Let's let's roll this stuff, talk it out, and see what happens. But how it relates to the book, uh, that's something else entirely. Well, I guess maybe it's not. It's one of those situations where it's pretty much the same. The only big difference in the book is that when it comes to the world and the role-playing, the segments where you're not actually in battle or in a dungeon, those become, I would say, more predominant. So I would say in the book, it's probably more of a 60% role-play versus 40% combat. But from what everyone I've talked to and a lot of people who contacted me after reading the book, I guess for them, with the way it flows, they are enjoying it so much that it just it feels like it's combat 24-7. But at the same point, they're like, these characters are so deep. And I'm looking at them kind of like, okay, so let me get this straight. You feel like it's nothing but combat, but you just feel all you just told me that you felt like you got to know these characters so well. So I'm like, that doesn't sound like all combat to me. <laughs> I have always said that combat is an opportunity for further role play. I've described it as the Final Fantasy effect. A lot of times, the moment the map comes out and the miniatures come out, it's like you hear the music going in a Final Fantasy game, and it's a completely different game. And I don't think it has to be. But a lot of times, that seems to be the case. And I think it's missing that opportunity to get to know characters. You can really get to know a character when it's under stress. And when is it most under stress other than when its life's in danger? You know, I can't disagree with you on that. I'll give you a great example. Um, in the one game I'm actually playing right now where I actually get to play, my character, his name's Alex, and he actually, his background, the short version is he comes from a noble family who, of course, is not noble anymore, but he has this, and I actually created it with, of course, you know, coffee grounds and everything, an old version of his family's code of honor. So in the middle of combat, you know, and I always, re when I refer to him, I always say, you know, okay, Alex does this. So that way they know it's Alex and it's not Charles. It's one of those things where, like, I've pulled out that uh, scroll and I've looked through it and I'm like, okay, and I will pick, like, a phrase out of it. And before I actually hit something or I roll the dice, I'll, you know, use that phrase somehow in a line just to emphasize his character, his thought, you know, the way he's feeling. And it's really... You know, it's maybe not role, maybe it's not role playing in the sense of a back and forth between me and another character, but it is role playing in the sense of you know that's who he is and he's saying this, and it's really brought a lot more to the game than what the other players expected, and for especially for combat. So we were talking earlier about playtesting a narrative or playtesting prose, and when I prep a game. I try to anticipate the player's actions, or at least a range of actions. So let's say that when I'm prepping a scene, I think of 10 different things the players might do. And I prepare for those 10. But one of the things that running a game requires is that you have to be able to think on your feet. Because in the course of them deciding what to do, the players may tend to go towards those 10 things. But inevitably, they're going to come up with option 11, 12, 13, something that I haven't thought of. And it's always kind of interesting to watch how they solve a situation in an unexpected way. 
And I've seen this even more when I run a con game and I might run the same game twice at the same convention with two different groups of people. And so I've anticipated actions one through 10 and the first group comes up with solution 11 and the second group comes up with solution 12 or, or, you know, but these two games end up turning out very differently. I remember there's one con game where I ran the exact same science fiction game twice. And one game turned out to be very much about subterfuge, very much about getting information, assessing the situations, much more quiet, much more subdued. The other one was a lot more adventurous, run-and-gun, kind of crazy, seat-of-your-pants sort of stuff. And it was the exact same pre-gen characters, the exact same plot, or at least in terms of the setup, you know, it was all 100% identical. I love doing that at a con. Yeah, and you see these diversities of how people respond to things. And, you know, I do wonder how many times when I'm reading book or watching a movie and I'm sitting there like shaking my fist in impotent rage, like, why is the character not doing this? And part of the reason may be the fact that the author or the director or whomever simply didn't think of it or didn't get themselves out of their own head when telling that bit of the story. And so I am now quite fascinated by this idea of sitting down with people and saying, okay, I got a scene in my book. Here's the characters. I want to see how you guys handle this. I want to see what you think they would do. And, you know, I'd tell them up front what's going on. I wouldn't rip them off, but it'd just be like, hey, you know, this is for a, a book I'm working on or short fiction or whatever it is. And I want to see how you guys think this scene would be handled. So I'm going to hand you each a couple sentences on a character and let's role play this out. I want you to do whatever seems right. And, you know, I take some notes on that and see what works, what doesn't work, what solutions they come up with. And I don't know, maybe they bumble their way through it and it's all stupid and I just use my own ideas anyway. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe they come up with something truly profound and yeah, I just put a note in the dedications that I, I'm grateful to so-and-so for doing something off the beaten path. And Even if they don't do anything different or odd or anything like that, it's a chance to test your NPCs too to get their thought process. Because it's one thing to be writing a character that's talking to another character in your head. It's another to write a character that's talking to a real person. Yeah. And I think that can sometimes help flesh out and make the conversations more fluid. I know one thing that I like to do when I do dialogue, because I think a lot of dialogue in books I have a problem with, is I like to speak it out loud. Does this dialogue actually sound like something someone would say? Or did I just give them a dissertation and they have no time to breathe? See, for me, it's one of those things when it comes to dialogue. For some of the classic readers, I've actually pissed them off. Uh, reason being is when you're having a conversation, and I've always been really good at, as in a sense, talking to myself. Um, when you're having a conversation, a lot is actually said that, you know, people, most people are like, well, you know, why are you throwing that in there? That makes no sense. You know, or, you know that's you're not propelling stuff forward. And I look at them, and I'm like, have a conversation with your best friend. Tell me of the conversation that you have. You guys sat there and talked for an hour. 
how much was on topic 100% to exactly what you went there to talk with them about? I'm like, that is, you know, not a true conversation if it's literally A, B, C, D. I was yeah. like, it's going to jump back and forth. And that's how I wrote my book. Yeah, that that's a major thing for who's the guy that directed uh, Pulp Fiction? I'm, I'm blanking out Quentin here. Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino. Thank you. I was just blanking. I was there for some reason. But that's a major thing that Quentin Tarantino talks about is if you watch his movies, so much of the character conversation is banal and off topic. They just talk about the most random stuff. I mean, for example, in Pulp Fiction, when they're getting ready to bust in on the guys and rough them up and kill some whatever the briefcase and drug deal and whatever was going on there, they're sitting there talking about pilot episodes of TV shows, if I remember right. And they carry that conversation on they being Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta. Thank you. I, I have just got no names tonight. <laughs> and John Travolta. And they carry on about that for quite a while. Now, I do find as a movie viewer that that gets a bit tedious. He, he goes a bit too far with it. But at the same time, I mean, he he's right. And you, Charles, you do beef are right that <laughs> people don't always stay on topic. Now, I think one could make the case that the purpose of a book is, so I guess you can debate, is it to reflect reality or is it to entertain? And sometimes the way reality works is not the most entertaining or the most compelling. And so I think the argument could be made that way. But I, I certainly see where you're coming from, and I think that you can learn a lot about a character by the banalities that they pursue, the things that don't matter. It's, it's a great role-playing technique I found is if your character is completely flat, give them two things. And these two things will almost always give a flat character some amount of dimension. One is give them a problem. And by problem, I don't mean a broken family for God's sake that has been done to death. <laughs> but, but give them an issue, an issue that's going on right now. They have a phobia. They have an ex that's stalking them. You know, they Maybe they're the ex that wants somebody back, whatever. Give them some kind of an issue. And like, then secondly, I'm, I'm out of prison and I've decided I was only gay for this day. <laughs> but, but my celly wants me to be his herm again. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, it's one of those things where, but, you know... <laughs> As far as things that, you know, that you throw in just to, like, show that depth of personality, uh, I'll give you a great one. So in the book, there's a character named Drendel. You guys would call him a rogue. And he's a halfling, and, of course, there's the dwarf. And there's this one just random part where they just decide to, you know, everyone's going to go to bed. And Ranstein, the dwarf, he lays down in his bed, and he's just like, oh, thank God. And he rolls over, and all of a sudden he's looking at a pair of eyes, smiling, and, you know, the smile looking at him and the, the, the smile's like hey and it scares the shit out of him and he screams like a girl and next thing you know everyone's coming out of the rooms and they find Drendel running out giggling with Ranstein coming after him with his axe yelling at him and it wasn't anything in particular it was just a funny moment that I had in my head of Drendel doing that I had to throw in there just because I would have done that <laughs> he startles there's his problem he startles easily what was the exactly second? you know but the other thing as far as books go when you were mentioning uh like you mentioned like a character having i don't know their parents killed or whatever 
That's like one of those YA tropes that so many bookgoers talk about. They're like, God, you know, like I can name a few, like every single in every single YA book, even fantasy, you know, both parents are killed or the girl's always biting her lip when she's looking at a guy or, you know, there's always same thing like that. You know, there's always some horrible, devastating story. And that's why, like, in mine, I was like, screw that. I'm like, you know, CK, guess what? His mom's still alive. He ends up finding stuff out about his father, you know? Not everybody comes from a bad background where they're completely traumatized. Are both parents alive? Yes, they are. Are they together? No, they aren't. Oh, as I said, because if they were together, you could never be a Disney movie. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, well, and I think that is so common in, in young adult stuff in particular, because you're talking to an audience that is seeking more independence that has reached a point where they're wanting more distance from their parents. So the parents simply being out of the picture and no longer being an obstacle nor the solution to the problems, you know, it creates that sense of independence, that sense of self-sufficiency. But the second thing I was going to give for flat characters this is why I keep notes. So I never lose my place because <laughs> I'm on the show. But the, the second thing to fix a flat character. So the first was give them a, a, a problem. The second, give them a hobby. Oh yeah. I mean, it's so, it's such a simple thing, but you ask the people, a lot of players, what is your character doing? Well, he tends the campfire or he goes hunting for game or he takes a watch. No, I mean, come on. This is, this is a person, right? I was about to say human being. Maybe it's not a human being, but it's a person. They have nothing they're interested in. There's no trashy book series that they're embarrassed about but keep reading. They don't whittle wood. They don't like puzzles. They don't have an interest in botany. I mean, something. There is literally nothing that interests them apart from the functional nature of their adventuring life. I sharpen my axe, I go on patrol, I take a watch, I get drunk at the tavern, and that's the extent of my life. I have nothing more. And that's why, like, you know, and I throw in, you know, little hobbies and stuff that people, if you would read the book or whatever, you don't even realize it's a hobby. A great one is um, CK, he likes to go dancing. And there's an actual, you know, little tavern slash club in the town, and that's his thing. And it's mentioned more than once. I don't let it drop. I mean, it's just, you know, when he's in town, it's not like something he doesn't do. I just don't reference it as it being his hobby. But it's one of those things where people are going, okay, you know, that's a normal thing that people do. People go dancing. Some people like reading. Other people knit. You know, paying attention to those little little details of a character to create depth. I got this whole, um, geez, I think it's like three pages long of a thing I fill out for my characters. And one of the things that most people don't go into depth on that I'll ask, I'm like, okay, so who is your childhood friend? Typical question for most people. Me, I can name my two childhood friends right now when I was a kid. You know, I ask other questions like, when did he get his first kiss? When did he do this? When did he do that? And people are like, holy cow. They're like, why would you want to know that? And I'm like, because it's those little things. I'm like, great example myself. My brother scared the hell out of me one day when he was sneaking into our house through my bedroom window. That little detail, it created a ripple effect with me in certain regards for the rest of my life. Little things like that make a character who they are just as much as a hobby, you know? Yeah, they do. 
<laughs> one of the examples that I love, I don't know if I've told the story on there or not. I, I might have. There was a Star Trek game that I was running where my sister's boyfriend, Doug, he was playing the captain of the ship and he was playing an Endorian. And if you don't know Star Trek, the, the point here is he's not human. And he was trying to fit into the predominantly human composition of Starfleet. And so he decided he wanted to pick up a, a collection thing. And he took a shine for a human thing that he misunderstood. So you know how some people collect beer bottles or wine bottles? Yeah. Okay, so he wanted to take up that hobby, but he completely misunderstood why you know, the historical context and the cultural context of why that's done. And so he was collecting salad dressing bottles <laughs> <laughs> and it was this complete nonsense thing. But like, if you went into his, his captain's ready room, there wasn't all these, you know, great carefully assembled ship models and, uh, an arc, you know, a 200 year old copy of Moby Dick or whatever. No, it was just lines and lines of like, Hidden Valley. Limited edition wishbone. <laughs> yeah, and what, exactly. Well, he was and the, collect- funny, the funny thing for that for me is I knew somebody that collected salt shakers. Not like the really fancy ones. Like, she would go to restaurants and, and slip them, them into her purse. <laughs> oh my the more gosh. interesting she could find at a restaurant, the better. I think but that was her entire collection was restaurant salt I, shakers. Well, then that also would be the problem, because now you have someone who has kleptomania. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> it was just funny. It created some funny moments, because, like, they got in a ship-on-ship combat, and the other ship put a shot to the bridge. And it was a non-serious hit. But nonetheless, it was enough to, to shake the ship and all this stuff. And so there was a scene after that whole thing was resolved. Once again, there wasn't any serious damage to the ship, but you know, it had gotten a good shaking up. And so there's a scene where he has, goes into his ready room, and because they're all empty plastic bottles, he's having to clean up and reorganize these however many <laughs> dozens or hundreds of Paul Newman salad dressing <laughs> bottles he's got. And it was awesome. It was hilarious. I remember that about the character because it was just, you know, it, it said something about him. It said something about his, how badly he wanted to fit in yet at the same time, didn't quite understand what he was doing. And so I love anyway, that. Yeah. I think we're about up against time. So let's go ahead and sign this one out here. Uh, once again, we've been talking to Charles Wellington, and Charles, the name of your book is? Corsana, the Phalanx Syndicate. Corsana, the Phalanx Syndicate. We will link that in the show notes. Uh, I'm assuming people can find it on Amazon. Oh, absolutely. I'd be very shocked if they couldn't. We will have that linked in the show notes if you want to pick up a copy of that and see what Charles has put together. And also, I'll put a link to the Flash Anthology and to the book I can't pronounce by Kathleen Kaufman. <laughs> and then one final announcement that I should have mentioned at the start and completely forgot and Brodo reminded me of, not somebody I expected on the save, but there it is. <laughs> 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 Which is the Fear the Con 11 Kickstarter is up and live. So if you want to come to Fear the Con 11 or if you can't come, because I know you want to, so I'm not going to say if you don't want to, but if you can't come but still want to support it, or get involved in that, I will link to that as well in the show notes. 
So please do get out there and consider backing the convention to make that happen. There's Beth and Adam and Derek and a bunch of great people putting it on again this year, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm definitely going to be there. Broder's already told me one of the games he's running, and I'm not even going to tell you what it is because I want to get signed up to it before it fills up. <laughs> but, yeah, Fear the Con 11 Kickstarter, so check the show notes for that. And beyond that, Charles, thank you very much for joining us, sir. It was great talking to you. Thank you very much for having me. It was awesome. And for you guys at home, have a great week and great games, and we will catch you next time. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2017. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. Fear the Boot is also a member of the RPG Academy network of shows. You can find other great shows in this network at therpgacademy.com slash network.